Hello and welcome to Teaching Python. This is episode 92, Let's Talk Teaching. My name's Sean Tiber. I'm a coder who teaches. <laughs> My name's Kelly Schuster-Perez, and I'm a teacher that codes. You make right, me laugh nobody, every time. <laughs> nobody has to know that that was our second take on it, Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> we did it. We did it unplanned. I'm so excited about this episode today. Sorry. So like always, I giggle when I'm excited oh. about meeting new people and talking to new people. Well, Ed, we have a lot of new people this morning. We've got a whole panel of teachers ready to talk about teaching Python in the classroom, outside of the classroom, a variety of settings. And I can't wait to get started. So why don't we let our guests introduce themselves? Dottie, why don't you go first? Okay, good morning. I am Dottie Holland. I am from the Fort Walton Beach area of Florida. And right now I'm out of the classroom I'm working on helping our district set up a computer science program, which will focus on machine learning and artificial intelligence. And we will begin the course this coming fall. And I will teach Python for the first course at the high school. Excellent. Andy, over to you. Hi, folks. I'm Andy Cully. I am a head of a computing department in Manchester, UK. I teach students from ages 11 to 18. In the past, I've taught Java, I've taught Visual Basic, and this is probably my second year through teaching Python all the way through. And I have no computer science qualifications whatsoever. I love that about you. And I think I read that somewhere about you. So I was like, yes, a person like me <laughs> and Dottie. Entirely, like, entirely self-taught. So I am daily feeling the fear. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Andre, over to you. My name's Andre, Andre Kmieleski. My students just call me Mr. C. I teach high school computer science down in South Florida at a North Broward prep school is the name of the place. And I spend nowadays most of my time teaching AP and IB computer science. So that's a lot of Java, unfortunately. I'd rather spend much more time teaching Python, but I try to sneak it in wherever I can. And I too also have no formal background in computer science, except for a little like teaching certification for IT. So I see we're all in good company here. I feel a little outnumbered, but I like it. <laughs> I'm super excited about also meeting a person that's got another connection. I told Sean this, my world has become smaller and smaller since the podcast. Andre used to work with a former colleague of mine from London, and he lives right next door to us. So it was pretty, pretty cool. <laughs> Before we get into our main topic, we'll start the same place we do every week with the wins of the week. So since we have such a big panel, I think we'll start with Andre first and then go around the room. I think we'll skip the fails of the week, not that there haven't been any, at least not for me. I mean, I've been totally perfect, but in the interest of time, we'll just stick to the wins of the week. So Andre, first thing to you, any wins this week inside, outside of the classroom? The wins inside the classroom, I'd say, it's not the, of the week, it's of the fortnight, perhaps, is exams are over. So AP exams are behind us, IB exams are behind us, which is great because now we're free to do any kind of project we want to do. And I can kind of sneak a little Python in there too. So that's really great to have that big milestone behind us and then just do really free exploration of code. Do you find that the kids are ready to learn the extra stuff after exams or are they completely burnt out? <laughs> a little bit of both, a little bit of both, but I kind of try to maintain this philosophy, you know, practice what I preach of like, let's, we're just always learning, continuously learning. And it's especially good if that learning isn't attached to a grade. It's learning for the sake of learning. Love that. Andy, over to you. 
Well, I'm in a very different situation to Andre in that our exams are just starting, as in they kick in for our 16-year-olds, year 11s next week, and then in a couple of weeks for our sixth formers or our year 13s, our 18-year-olds there. But this week I have finished marking and I have handed in the marks for our year 13 coursework, the projects, and these things are monsters, 150 pages or so of write-up and code and everyone is different and I have marked some amazing pieces of work. I've marked a Sudoku tutorial, I've marked a maze generator and solver that uses shortest path algorithms, I've marked a Cluedo recreation, they're brilliant but they take me hours, they take me hours, it is a full-on labour of love so every weekend for the last few weeks has been doing that and that's in now. That's, that's, that's an awesome <laughs> feeling. I, on the way home from PyCon, graded 180 assignments. I have like 100 something more because thanks to Sean laughing at me with my grading, but I appreciate being done with grading one day soon in the next, what, 12 days, 11 days? Whew, crazy. Yeah. You know, Kelly and I have had a lot of conversations about this. As much workload as that adds for a teacher to grade projects and to grade so many different kinds of projects it is probably the most valuable feedback you can give. And so to your point, it's a labor of love. Like I love doing that, but it is certainly a pile, just a mountain of work to get through. Eventually it's worth it. At least that's what I keep telling myself. (laughs) Well, for someone like me who's teaching the A-level, which is the, I don't know, it'd probably be your last two years of high school for you guys course the programming skills required for these students is phenomenal and for someone who's self-taught like me i have to go away and learn this stuff first and then i have to look at their style and how they've applied it and i've got to judge whether this project is a level standard or not and a lot of the time i'm digging through the code going really is that how you do that oh brilliant and i'm learning so much, i'm learning so much stuff from what they do I always say part of my job is to make myself progressively more redundant as I go through. And by the time they're in year 13, my students should be miles better coders than I am. And I'm so proud of this particular class because they really, really are. That's so amazing to hear someone else say that. I always tell the kids, like, listen, for me, I'm stuck in basic land, you know, sixth, seventh and eighth graders. And I always tell them by ninth grade, you're going to be better than me. By 12th grade, you're going to be making millions. Go for it. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> it's great. Sorry, we keep going. I think, Sorry. I think, yeah. Sorry, you're going to have to <laughs> shut me up at some point. But <laughs> I just think it's vital in computer science, and especially when you're teaching programming, to model failing because that's what programming is. It's making mistakes and being resilient and coming back and finding your bugs and fixing it. And you've got to learn to love the struggle. Absolutely. Absolutely. Dottie, you want to get right. your win? I don't really have a win. I'm not in the classroom, so... Yeah, it's just, I don't have a win really to give that. But it doesn't have to be in the classroom per se. It can be literally anything that happened that went well this week. Got the audio working. Um, That's definitely a win. Yeah, I got the audio working. (laughs) That helped. I went to a workshop yesterday that I've been going to. It happens every two weeks. And I learned about some Python stuff that I've never done before. I learned how to manipulate Jupyter Notebook a little bit better. So that was a win. That's a huge win. <laughs> Congratulations on that one. <laughs> so that's about right. it for my week. Hey, that's a good win. We'll take it. <laughs> Kelly, how about you? You know what? I'm going to go a little bit off tangent today with my win. I found you know, me always reading and clicking and trying to learn something new and never like finishing, just, you know, keeping up with the Joneses of the learning world and Python and whatever and pedagogy. I found 
Elon Musk has a school called Astronova. And they also have this summer camp because I was looking for camps for my kid. I got down a rabbit hole like I always do. And anyways, I came across his there. I'm not sure who else owns it. Summer camp called Synthesis. And I got stuck playing this game where this is their initiation game when they try to get people to come in and see what their program is about. And it's called Rubicon. And I won't spoil it because the whole point is you're supposed to figure out the game yourself. And that's the whole point of their camp. And I just thought it was really interesting and it played like had a really soft spot in my heart of how we teach in the classroom of here's the game that we play, this game of learning how to code, go figure it out yourself and tell me what you learn. And it was just nice to see that there's other places out there, not necessarily with code that does that. So that was my huge win. And I've been stuck playing this game. I've gotten to like the fourth level. <laughs> I'm trying to beat the computer who keeps getting harder. <laughs> so you have to check it out. It's called Rubicon Synthesis. So All right. We'll throw a link to that in the show notes. It'll be pretty fun to check out. So my win this week is actually a little bit of a throwback, although I'm in this big, fancy corporate job now, you know, doing engineering work and coding and everything. I've been working really hard on the intern program for our company. So we have 10 interns coming in from a variety of schools. They're all college level sophomores, juniors, even a grad student. And they're coming into the IT function at Mondelez and they're working in all these different areas and doing all these cool projects and everything. And I was thinking a lot about what those first few weeks of the intern experience look like. And I'm putting together essentially a you know twice weekly curriculum for them in terms of here are the things that you need to learn to be an intern on our team and be successful. And I'm going through and building it out and I'm putting together things like how to use GitHub and how to, you know, here's some intro to Python and different things that they'll need from a technical perspective, but also things like here's how to ask for help. Here's how to effectively learn new things. So giving them some tools that they can use. And I shared it with the manager who's in charge of the overall intern program. And she was just kind of blown away by it. And she's like, so could I come to some of these? Because you're touching on things that I want to learn. I want to do more with it. And it was just a really nice affirmation of all of the skills that I picked up in my time as a teacher, that these are valuable in a lot of different settings, not just within the walls of a school. The response to these, you know, experienced, you know, very qualified corporate colleagues of mine has been, wow, you can put together some really great learning and teaching materials that's so valuable. And so like, I was just having this nice moment where I thought my two worlds were kind of converging together again, which has been really nice to have this week. And it made me feel really good. Are you trying to do two jobs at Mondelez? You want to do like <laughs> the curriculum too? He loves teaching. He can't get away from it. <laughs> I can't stop. So we have four interns on our team this summer and they're all amazing. And, you know, they're college level. They have a lot that they want to learn, but so far they're resounding response from each of them has been, I can't wait to try applying what I've been learning in school. I can't wait to try apply, you know, applying all this knowledge and to give them that opportunity this summer, you know, we'll probably achieve 60% of what we set out to do, but hopefully that 60% is really meaningful for them. And I can't wait to get started. It's awesome. It's a really interesting point you make there about how your managers and other people are coming into your room and coming in to see you and saying, well, I'd like to learn this as well. Is it called the expert fallacy, where we always assume that other people know more about what we do than, than they really do? Well, it could be that, or it could just be the fact that this 
domain of technology is so broad and has so many different topics, no person can expect to know any of it, you know, really well, right, let alone all of it. And so to have the opportunity to learn from each other is a really valuable thing. And especially as these things change, I mean, GitHub has been around for a while, but you'd be surprised how many large organizations have been kind of stuck in their little pathways and everything and to have people come in from the outside. I've only been there six months, come in from the outside and say, hey, I can teach you some new things. They're excited for it, too, because, you know, they're in our field, I think people tend to be lifelong learners. They just don't always have the opportunity to learn these things. Or the time, right? Yeah. So, Very cool. So let's get going, though. I want to hear from other people, Sean. I want to like let everyone else talk because I, like everyone else, like to learn from others. So, <laughs> Yeah, I think this will be a really great conversation, and we're going to try to get out of the way as much as possible because you know, our listeners have heard from us for 90 something episodes. Let's listen to some other teachers and hear what they're doing and share some ideas. So Kelly, you have a list of questions prepared to just kind of kick start the conversation. What's the first thing on your list? Oh, man, I had a couple. I think most importantly is I think I want to start with the hopes because that is sort of solidifies my why for why are we teaching Python? But what is the hopes and what do you think may happen, I say may happen, that sounds really futuristic, but what do you hope to get from your students by teaching them code and more importantly, teaching them the language of Python? Because I know we teach a lot of other languages, but what do you hope this might bring about? Is that good enough? That's, you know, very futuristic. (laughs) My why, my why do we teach Python? (laughs) Right. So Andre, maybe start with you first. Sure, sure. I see teaching Python as, I like Python because I see it as what could become the kind of lingua franca of programming. I think it was actually, I was listening to your show from last week, and I think Kelly said that it has this appeal because it's so close to spoken language that it's really this thin layer to for students to and for anyone to take on to just make that leap to program, right? It's just such a natural language. And so what I'm looking for in my, where I teach at the APIB level is ways of incorporating it into projects that might involve other languages or other platforms. So let me give you an example. For the IB, students have to do an internal assessment. This is a big project. They have to find a client and program something for the client to solve a real solution right? There's no teacher's notes how to do this. They invent, they find the project, they find the client, they come up with it. And my original approach was, hey, anything's open, mobile app, mobile this, any platform. And that became so overwhelming for me because if they did a project in, let's say, Flutter, then I don't know Flutter. Oh, okay. So I've had to corral them into some languages and those two languages have ended up to be Java and Python. So Python's great because like out of the box, you have TK Inter, you have Flask you could do, and all these really accessible things, which I'll be honest, you just don't see with Java. They're kind of getting there now, but you know Python's been very accessible to people right from the beginning. But now that I'm kind of digging deeper into this, I see that, for example, you're able to do VBA programs. So you could write Excel macros in Python and have them converted over into VBA, which you know I don't know if everyone quite knows the status of VBA in the development community. Stack Overflow's yearly developer survey consistently 
ranks it as one of the most dreaded languages to learn. So, you know, I don't want to bring in another language and say, you have to learn this because, and by the way, all the developers hate it. I'm sorry, guys. Instead, <laughs> I can just use Python and it create, and there's a wrapper. It's a wrapper for this other computer language. And so, like I said, I really see the direction of Python as becoming the lingua franca. And it's kind of interesting just because my experience with Python has been kind of a forced one, I'll say, because is not a lot of, because I found that Python's really accepted at the lower levels. But when you get higher up into the more like competitive coding, then it's C and Java and Python is kind of, I don't want to say looked down upon, but it's seen as a more limited language. But I like that Python is, has such a strong community that it's fighting to maintain relevance. And like I said, I think that overall, this will become the lingua franca of programming that everyone's going to know a little Python just because you can access all these other things with it. So that's where I am. Andy, is that something similar to what you're seeing in the A-levels when you're teaching at that kind of you know upper end of secondary education? At the very top end, yeah. At the very top end. Now, I'm probably the wrong place to say this, but I don't want to teach Python. Let me preface this by saying I am a massive teaching nerd. I am a huge pedagogy nerd. I'm one of those people who, one time when I'm not teaching, I like to talk about teaching. So other people kind of give me a swerve in the staff room every now and again. But what my overall goal for my students is, is I want to create students who are capable of solving problems who have the skills to take a problem, understand it, decompose it, break it down into those steps, and then apply those steps to a particular language. And the reason I've landed on Python is because it's got a low bar for entry. It removes a lot of the extraneous cognitive load that you see in a lot of other programming languages. When you're teaching 11-year-olds and you want them to use a variable, then you don't want to have to do two hours on data types first and declare declaration versus instantiation versus as assignment you want to teach them the concept of the variable and that's hard enough for them to get the head around on its own so python has that low bar but it has a high ceiling as well you can do all the complicated things you can interface with other aspects i mean i've got students who are a level who are writing sql queries for their database through python and you can take it where you want but at the very bottom end the very beginner end it is all about how can i pick a language which will allow these students just to focus on the thing i'm trying to teach them without having to jump over a load of other conceptual hurdles first and that's why i landed on python i love that idea this you know, the high ceiling being able to skip out the direct teaching of everything that you have to know about computer science that sometimes gets in the way of solving problems and I'm sure that might bring a lot of hope to you, Dottie, as you are starting to think about your career and your goals for the rest of your teachers in the district. What do you think about that whole mm -hmm. low bar, high ceiling? I like the fact that Python, it allows for kids to be successful right off the bat. You know, it is easier to show them how to do something and then let them practice it and do it right, you know, like Andy was saying with the variables, you just, you explain to them what a variable is. Most of them hopefully already know the term variable, but how it's applied in computer programming is going to be a lot easier for them to understand when they can do it and see it right away. My biggest hopes 
for this program is to give the students the tools that they can use to navigate their world. Because like what Andy was saying, when it comes to teaching the students, I want to teach them more how to solve problems and teaching them computer programming helps them solve those problems by becoming a more critical thinker and being able to break it down so that they can make sense of the problem and be able to find a solution to it, no matter what that problem is, whether it's in life or it's in a computer program or it's in a math class or a reading class, it doesn't matter. I want them to be able to solve those problems. How do you find that, Dottie? Because I find, Andre as well, I mean, not everyone, I always find that my students, the hardest bit for them is taking something that they might do naturally in real life, looking at a list of numbers and finding the highest one, and breaking that down into a series of steps, detailed and small enough to turn into a program. That decomposition is the thing that mine really gets stuck on. And I'm really looking at ways to model that for them and give them some direct instruction around that rather than just here's a problem off you go because they end up completely stuck with no legway out there. I think the best way to handle that for the kids is to give them a chance to grapple with it for a bit. I think especially in today's kids they want instant gratification. They're so used to everything being at their fingertips that when we present them with a problem they want the answer right away. When we were at the education summit, someone said something, and I'll try to paraphrase as best I can what they said, but basically, you have to give the kids a way to solve a problem that allows them to make mistakes. You can't say, okay, here's a problem. Now this is how you solve it. You have to show them the problem. And then once they've grappled with it, don't just give them the answer. Show them how you came to the conclusion, how you solved it. Work through the steps and let them see those steps. I think modeling problem solving is the best way for them to learn it. And then also, like I said, having a moment to actually grapple with it. Don't just say, oh, you can't figure it out. Well, here's the answer. My kids would get so mad at me because they would come up and, you know, oh, I have this problem. I can't find the answer. And I was like, really? Why can't you find the answer? Let's figure out what have you done so far to solve it? And then once they start thinking about what they've done so far, they're like, oh, okay, it's right there. I don't know if I'm making myself clear. It's really hard to explain. You just don't give them the answer. Just flat out, don't give them the answer. Make them solve it themselves. I, I, oh, I was going to say, I totally agree with you, Dottie. And it kind of goes back to what Andy was saying of we're not really teaching programming, we're teaching problem solving. And one of the most kind of comments from a student I got was that it really was good for them to see me grapple with the problem. And so I recorded a tutorial of like, this is how you make a website in Flask. And I got to a point where, you know, I was screen recording and I said, okay, wait, this isn't working. Okay. And so I stopped the video because I was just feeling like I look like an idiot here and I figured it out. And then I said, well, actually, maybe I'll just leave that part in. And I come back to the recording and I'm like, okay, so I was just spent 20 minutes looking this up and this is how to do it. And this was the problem. It's here online this. And the student actually said like, that was really good because they saw that, you know, whenever we present our thing, it's already, 
you know, we've done the dirty work and we're presenting the very nice, clean version of it. But they actually need, you know, we have to model the behavior. And the model behavior is like fail, get stuck, do all these things, right? Because that's part of the process, right? As you said, Dottie, grappling with the problem. I want to add a question on there, adding on to Andre for you guys. I often hear about, you know, people being afraid to fail, being afraid not to know the answer and having all three of you kind of like me. What advice do you give to those teachers who are starting out with computer science? And, you know, how do you fight that feeling to do what Andre did and put that into a a recording saying, hey, I did not know that answer and I had to find it out. What kind of advice would you give? I think it's absolutely necessary and good for students to see that their teachers don't know everything. Because for so long, students have this mindset, especially when I was teaching elementary school, they think that the teacher is the old wise owl. You know, they know everything. They're the smartest people in the world. When really, we don't. We don't know it all. We know how to teach it. And we know how to look up answers. And I think a lot of people, if you don't know how to do something, be honest with your students. Tell them, you know what? I don't know how to do that. Let's figure this out together. And I learned so much more from my students than they ever realize. And so I just, I'm honest with them. And I just tell them, hey, let's figure this out together. Let's be guinea pigs. Let's try something new. And Dottie, I think you're hitting on something that's kind of been around since, you know, that whole relationship between teachers and students was first established, right? There's a knowledge disparity between the two, but it feels like somehow in, you know, sitting here in 2022 that this problem has, the gap has grown wider, right? Or that students have, you know, are feeling this even more so. Is there something beyond the student-teacher relationship that in our, you know, culture, our society, that is exacerbating this problem that you can see? Like, and this is a question to everybody, like what factors are making it so that students feel like they have to get it right the first time you mentioned instant gratification before, but are there other areas where they're seeing this sort of like fear of failure being even more exacerbated? Well, I don't know what it's like in terms of the American school system. And I know it's different state to state and district to district, but in England, we have a school inspectorate who come in and inspect you and you are judged on a variety of factors. We also have tests for our 11-year-olds in primary school. We have tests at 16. We have tests at 18. And the curriculum is very, very heavy. You know, you hear a lot of teachers talking about covering the curriculum, which basically means just managing to get through everything in the amount of lessons you've got available to you. So that time to stop and slow down and really embed the learning get skimmed over a bit and you've got to be really really skillful in order to build that into your lesson time and because of that when you're a teacher and you are being judged on results on outcomes and a child is getting it wrong and you know you've got three hours that week or one hour that week in terms of 11 to 14 year olds here one hour that week to cover this particular thing before you've got to move on the next week then How do you stop and spend 10 minutes unpicking that problem? It's significantly easier for you as a teacher to solve that problem for that child and move on, except they haven't really learned anything. I'm sure Will They haven't really learned anything. And what you're teaching, well, no, they have learned something, sorry. They've learned helplessness. Yeah. 
And so they learn to rely on the teacher to come along and sweep up after them. 100%. I'm sure Will Richardson's over there screaming if he listens to this episode. And this makes me kind of go into another, think about another question for you. This is another wishful because I love living in the dream world. So I feel lucky because I'm in a wheel course, which is almost in the kid's eyes as an elective, you know, almost. They do Python in nine weeks and it's not like math and it's not... English and they don't have a set curriculum. So I can kind of cover what I want as long as I'm covering coding. If you guys had an option to teach in your school any which way you want, how would you? You want to leave Andre to do it. Andre, Andre, oh, sorry. <laughs> I keep wanting to give a Spanish accent. <laughs> Andre to do it. <laughs> so what if I just could teach any way I want? I would probably just take a fully project-based approach of this time or this trimester or this, you know, whatever the finite amount of time is, your goal is to make a system that does hits these requirements. You have to figure it out all yourself and just move forward from there. That said, I think in the beginning, that would be such a challenge for me because students are used to, you know, just as Andy said, we as teachers are used to covering the curriculum. Students are also used to having the curriculum be covered and hit these bars. And if all of a sudden the teacher's like, no, 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 just this is open. Just go ahead and solve this problem, do this project and solve the problems associated with it. They might have to, you know, recalibrate themselves. So that would be mine. Just, you know, solve problems, do projects. I'm in a unique position where I get to do that. I'm one of the ones helping write the curriculum, not really write the curriculum, but find the ways that we want to teach this to the students. And across the board, we're all, it's got to be project-based. And so I keep looking for things that I can put into the curriculum, into the lessons that, okay, here's a problem. How are we going to solve this? And I think it's going to start with out the computer. They're going to have to solve it on paper before they ever try to solve it in code. And it's going to be vital that they understand that systems thinking process where, you know, almost kind of like you have to think about a backwards. I know if I don't know something or how to do something, if I know the answer, I can work my way back. But kids need to know that that's also a possibility. Give them a solution and say, okay, what was the problem that we solved? Give them a chance to decompose a problem that's already been solved. I think, I'd probably go the opposite way as Andre in terms of the project base for me would be the end result. But if you look at the way that novices learn and the way that novices solve problems and what we know about the way the brain works, then even by watching an expert solve a problem, they won't learn what they need to learn in order to perform like that expert because the gulf between someone who does this for a living or someone who teaches this all the time and someone who's just coming in to learn this is too broad. So what you'll find is you'll get a lot of students who are stuck and don't have the tools to get themselves unstuck. I teach everyone. I teach all our students. In my department, we teach all our students from the age of 11 to the age of 14 for an hour a week of computing. Now, that's not just programming. That is also the IT skills, the software skills. That is the digital citizenship, the digital wisdom, the online safety, everything. We get one hour a week for that. And so they might get six, maybe seven hours of programming a year at best, at best. And so what I found is this pedagogical framework called PRIM. Now, I don't know if you've heard of it before, 
PRIMM, which effectively takes the students through from me being the expert in the room in terms of they are, at first I am providing all the code and providing all the examples and they are making predictions on them. So here's some code. I'll explain to you the skills and explain to you what the code means. Now here are some examples with that particular, let's use a print statement, predict what this code will do. Now run it and see if you were right and note down the differences. You've then got investigate, which is some example code and detailed questions around that to test that they've actually learned what you're trying to teach them, give you that information as a teacher to know whether what you've taught has gone in. And if it has, brilliant, you can move those students on. If not, you need to stop there and you need to circle back and reteach it and go again. Because if you're moving on, what you will end up with is a lot of lost, dispirited students. And this is the same for teachers. I remember that feeling and I've tried to keep it, you know, right here, that feeling of being and not knowing what the hell I was doing teaching programming and not knowing you're talking about some people they're talking about flask and they're talking about jupiter and what are they you know and this is beyond just learning about selection statements or even lists even oop and so on that we get at the top end over here so you get the investigate stage then only then the students start to gradually create their own code with the first m of prim which is the modify stage where i give them an example and they have to change it up so we're moving from, and I'm doing a lot of waving my hands here, which is really good for a podcast. <laughs> I do the same. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. We're moving from not my code with these students. And they spend a long time at the not my code stage until I am satisfied that they have learned what I'm trying to teach them. Then they move into partially my code. And then once they are ready with partially my code, they move into all my code. And that's where I give them the independent tasks. Now, at age 11, those independent tasks are quite short. It might be a 10-line program. But that's where they start to solve the problems. And this is where what we were talking about before, the learned helplessness. Well, I'm stuck. Okay, look back at all those examples. Use the reference we've looked at. Look at the mistakes you've made here, here, and here. And if I do have to help them with debugging, I'm saying I spotted that mistake because I've made that mistake 100 times. And that's why I'm really good at spotting it. And I'm that with the teacher talk, it's normalizing that failure. I told you I was a pedagogy nerd, <laughs> but this is, for me, it's been an absolute revelation in the way I teach because it's helped me provide the scaffolding across that gulf between being able to write some code based on lots and lots and lots of experience of doing it and getting it wrong and really starting out with a brand new skill. So what I'll do is I'll isolate a skill like variables or I'll isolate a skill like selection and I will plan a series of exercises that take them through p-r-i-m-m all the way through and this is my so I suppose on my wish list a I want quadruple the time I've got in the classroom please with each class and b what I'd love because I don't have the experience is how this stuff's used in real life how do real people working for real businesses use these skills to solve real problems? And then at that make stage, I can give you something that is meaningful. How can we use this to change the world? How can we use this to interact with how many people? Let's, how many people are in space right now? Let's drag that information down and make a quiz based on it. Can you predict that? What's the weather like where you are? Well, let's use a selection statement to give you some advice on what clothes to wear. Things like that, that I've learned by looking at what other teachers are doing. And I've stolen those ideas wholesale. You know, research, I think they call it. Well, so Andy, my question is, have you seen as your students progress, because you have this nice longitudinal view of what's going on, where 
if you're providing that scaffolding for them early on, what happens when you start to shift out of that scaffold into other areas or students are tasked with going and learning things on their own? Do you see them taking elements of that prim model in terms of their learning process and using it for themselves? Or is it something that is you know, more teacher driven? And once they get off of that, they do whatever they want. Like, are you seeing any sort of like adoption? It's early days for me with Prim. There's not very much research-based practice in computing in the UK because it's only been back on the government agenda as a subject for the last five, six years or so, maybe a bit longer now. But what I'm starting to see at A-level with those students who do take this is that it's starting to really bear fruit starting to really bear fruit in terms of the way they are going off and they are motivated to solve problems. They've seen me run up against walls. They've seen me make all the mistakes. That is a normal process. And they're starting to combine the skills. I try and teach each skill. It's like Lego, each different shaped brick. First, we've got to understand the brick. We've got to know the brick. We've got to know what it's for. And we've got to know the situations in which we can use it. And then we can start to combine it with other bricks from other lessons to create things. I think what happens is a lot of the activities that I've seen and a lot of the exercises that I've seen are, okay, print statements, variables, and now what I want you to do is make something that uses selection and nested while loops and next recursion. And you go, okay, okay, wait a minute. (laughs) It's funny because I just had a conversation last week with two people from the UK and it was opposing arguments on the prem. We had a music teacher who was a developer. I'm not going <laughs> to, I'll say who it was, is Nick Tolerve who created Moo and another mm-hmm. teacher who works in a, it was a unique situation. It was a public school, but they have boarding. So they have a lot of the private features in the UK mm-hmm. and they were having this conversation kind of similar to how are you? One was the prim and the teacher was using prim and really enjoyed it. And Nick threw him a loop and we were talking about ear sketch and he goes, I would do it backwards. <laughs> so it was interesting. I'm now seeing Nick was like, as a music teacher, play the music. So it was kind of interesting seeing the same synopsis. Yeah. Kind of switching into that. It was this visual outlook, not to get too much on the pedagogy, but what other ways do you guys use to make Python visual? For example, this conversation was with EarSketch, which is a musical platform that allows you to code music with Python and has all these beats and you can visually see the manipulation of the beats, reverse strings and whatnot and string manipulation. Any suggestions on other ways to make learning visible from anyone? (laughs) I will jump in again, but I feel like I'm doing all. (laughs) When you say making Python visual, the Python visualizer website. Mm -hmm. If you come across this, paste your code in step by step. Python tutor? Yeah. Absolutely. It just, it logs all your variables. It logs all your data structures. It shows what lines executing next. So when you're running, when you're teaching about functions and procedures, it's brilliant because you can see it jumping around in the code. Recursion, when the students can see what's happening with recursion, it just makes it so much more. There's an idea as well, Thony, T-H-O-N-N-Y. Have you come across that one? I think you and Sean had a conversation prior to recording because these are all the things that Sean was throwing out. That's got a really great step debugger. Yeah. That I've not seen in anything else, but I I love the idea of that. If students can see the point and they can see a real world application, it's such a motivational factor. And that sounds like what Dottie's doing, what Andre's doing, 
you know, I'd love to be able to pick your brains about the projects that you set. And because I'm very conscious that what I do is, is quite a lot of conceptual teaching and I don't have the end result in my armory yet. So I really, that's where I'm trying to learn. Let's go there. Andre, do you have any projects or something you want to share that you actually love and doing and found success in or Dottie? Andre's going to have to take that one because I haven't, haven't done that yet. Projects that for, with students just in general projects. Yeah. I think coming back to what I mentioned already, the internal assessment for IB, it's such a, so the way I do it is I really like not only take the letter of the assignment, but the true spirit of the assignment, right? I think a lot of teachers, and maybe I would benefit from this in terms of, you know, number of gray hairs I'd have on my head of just doing like, oh, well, here's just the checkboxes. So kids just get all those checkboxes taken care of and we're good to go here. And I say, no, you need to find a real client. You you need to solve a real problem. And if you don't, and that has been quite a process because the students really authentically struggle. At the same time, after the fact, they end up very grateful, say, this is the number one thing that is like the most impactful thing I ever learned in terms of all my computer science education was having to do this project from scratch. So just in terms of, you know, project ideas, one thing that they had was a student had to put together a like a appointment manager for a teacher. So, or administrator, I should say. So, you know, the administrator would put all the windows that they're available, all the time slots, and it would generate like a form for a person to fill out. And that form would then allow that person to select one of those windows and then kind of reserve that appointment slot. And just the process of, again, kind of dealing with it, of struggling with it was very eye-opening for them. As Andy's saying here, So I've never heard of this prim framework. So I'm going to take a look at that because if there's anything I could do to make that a little smoother, then I'm all for it. You know, I really enjoy these kind of conversations and I really enjoy the show because, you know, it's like you said at the beginning, like we're hanging out in the staff room talking, just chatting amongst teachers, except I'm like one of two computer science teachers in my school and the other one is teaching really AP principles, which is, you know, almost no programming. So I'm kind of stuck out there in my own thing. So I just feel like I'm here and I've learned more than I'm providing. But, you know, that's that's what it is. I want to get in and pick your brain real quick so you can explain to the listeners because it's been about six years since and I'm an MYP International Baccalaureate. Some people don't really know that program. The IB internal assessment, correct me if I'm wrong, it's on a bunch of criteria for like your own engagement in your problem, like your own exploration your own analysis of the solution and and evaluation and how you communicate. Is that still how it is? It's kind of like this, I pick the project, I, you know, it makes it more on the student. Is that? So that's definitely more of an MYP thing. And the rest of IB is, is moving into that direction. I was actually an MYP coordinator for like two years. So I totally know the language. IB diploma program is still a little more academic I'd, I'd say like it's the first IB program. So it's really modeled upon colleges and kind of the more traditional content-based approach while PYP, MYP are much more into the like, let's explore the learning process. Let's develop that. And I think overall, DP is heading in that direction. IB is trying to reverse engineer it, re-engineer it. But that said, all this kind of documentation that they have to provide for it is very attempts to get them to reflect upon it. So the documentation isn't like documentation for a program like you would have, like, how does this program work? I need to read the documentation. 
documentation is sent to the examiner and the examiner sees how the student designed the solution, how the student developed the solution, and how they evaluated the solution. All that said, it's sometimes hard to get the student to kind of buy into like, oh, I'll just code it first and then I'll fill out the documentation. It's like, no, 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 stop, 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 stop. That's not, I know that's how you do everything else. You know, you just want to get the answer and be done with it, but that's that's not how we approach it here. So getting them into that mindset is a task and is like a learning goal in and of itself. Yeah, my students get so mad at me because I throw, I did design thinking middle school years for 12 years. And so I'm like, no, you must have at least a minimum of three problems before you start to solve this microbit challenge. <laughs> so I was just about to mention microbits, actually. Yeah. I think we probably should, like, I think this is showing me that we should have a pure projects-focused episode and have a panel discussion about this just to come up with ideas and approaches. There's so many different things we can do. I mean, even just the idea of making it so the students make not making the project for themselves, they have to design it for someone else, means that it shapes the project very differently, right? If they have to come up with someone else's needs versus their own, sometimes it can help with that project, you know, focus where they're almost reverse designing it, right? So there's a lot of things we could talk about here. I think think summer's coming up, summer's coming up. So a lot of more time for it. Well, not for you, Andy. Sorry. (laughs) I've got what a month and a half left or so. So yeah, but it's it's interesting what you're saying, because if you're throwing into a project, that idea of designing for other people, you're throwing in an extra layer of cognition Mm -hmm. there, aren't you? Of things that the student has to think about. I always talk to computer science students about it by saying, I've only got so much RAM and so have you. Yeah. So how are you as a teacher? And this is something that's big in England at the moment. There's a big push on understanding the theory around the brain and how it learns because a lot of teachers, and I'm definitely one of them, will go by gut instinct. I think this is the best way to teach. Therefore, I will teach my way. And then when it doesn't work, you've put, there's a lot of sunk cost in that, isn't there? You've got a lot of chips in the pot. And so you're going to carry on gambling because you can't back out now. And so I've had to really reteach myself around cognitive load theory around, have you heard of Rosenshine's principles of instruction? Has that come up before? No, but we will no? definitely have a conversation about yeah, that yeah, again. Absolutely. It's, yeah, <laughs> don't get, us, don't get me around. started with pedagogy because Sean will be ready to wrap it up. <laughs> yeah. I told you I was a nerd. That idea of, I see a lot of students who come into my class and they want to jump in and just bash buttons and make things happen. And that's great. But going back to your music analogy, I wouldn't give you a clarinet and say, right, jazz solo now before I've shown you which end to blow into. (laughs) So I'm not a musician, I'm a bass guitar player, but (laughs) I've still got to know my scales. I've still got to know the notes associated with each key. I've still got to understand the forms and structures of the song. I've still got to understand the conventions. What am I playing? Am I playing blues here? Am I playing jazz? There are different things that go with different. And as someone who's been playing for 20 years, I'm not an expert, but I'm moving towards that. So I have a lot of ingrained, deep, tacit knowledge that novices don't have. So I have to wind that back. And this is why I use Prim. I wind that back as I start my students coming in as novices, moving on that journey to be experts. I have to do more direct instruction. They learn much more from work examples. They learn much more from modeling. And we know this now, research is proving this, than just throwing them in the deep end at a problem. When they are experts, doing that to them 
will turn them off, will bore them, and they'll they'll go and they'll go off and study something else. So you have to give them those real world challenges and those real world problems. But this is sort of in reality, this is the background behind the approach that I try and use in my classroom. Now it sounds like I get it right all the time, every time, and I can assure you, you know, just like with programming, just with teaching, that's absolutely not the case. But this is the sort of the pathway that I'm on. Well, I hate to cut the conversation short, but I am looking at the clock and realizing what a fantastic conversation we've had for the last going on an hour now. I want to make sure that we have a chance to let everyone get on with their Saturday morning or afternoon, Andy, or wherever you happen to be as you're listening to this. But I think this really is just showing us that there's so many more conversations that we can have. We can create this kind of break room style discussion where we can share ideas and have conversations about, you know, the things that are similar, the things that are different, and we'll all get a lot out of it. So I think as much as I don't see our conversation coming to an end per se, I do have to stop it as the co-host. And say thank you to each of you for sharing your ideas and bringing such great thinking to our show today and to the work that you're doing. Kelly, is there anything upcoming for our listeners that we need to highlight for them other than summer? I was going to say just more conversations later on. As Andy said, he's a big pedagogy nerd. I'm a big pedagogy nerd. So I'm not going to say anything else to get either of us going again. (laughs) (laughs) And Andre and Dottie are going to be talking more about stuff later. So yes. I'm being quiet. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So we do have a upcoming guest list that is taking shape quite nicely. We hope to have more conversations coming your way throughout the summer. So again, to our guests, thank you, Andre. Thank you, Dottie. Thank you, Andy, for joining us today to talk about teaching and Python and everything in between. So I think we can wrap up here. If you'd like to share your own thoughts or responses to the guests, we'll share social media contact information for anyone who's willing. We'll have links to the different shows that people are on or participate in. If you'd like to share directly with us, you can go through our website at teachingpython.fm. We're also on Twitter at teachingpython. I'm at SM Tiber on Twitter and Kelly is at Kelly Pared on Twitter. So I think that pretty well does it for this week. Yeah. Kelly, anything I'm missing? No, I'm going to get my kids off of Minecraft and make them go out for the day. <laughs> yeah, same here. <laughs> that sounds like a great plan. So for Teaching Python, this is Sean. This is Kelly signing off.